This episode is sponsored by the brand new Space and Beyond box from Astronomy Magazine. We got to get some uh, echo on that, I think. Go to spaceandbeyondbox.com slash giveaway, and you will have a chance to win a one-year subscription to the Space and Beyond box. (laughs) Welcome to What the If... I am super pumped for today's episode. How about you, Matt? That's a really long name. (laughs) Matt Stanley, professor of the history of science. And you are at New York University. Mm -hmm. My alma mater as well. As as it is for all right-thinking people. Yep. And left-thinking (laughs) Um, but why am i super pumped why am i so pumped because we have casey dreyer here from the planetary society and uh, speaking of long names casey's title is chief advocate and senior space policy advisor for the planetary society casey how are you i'm doing great guys thanks for having me on the show i'm very excited because i am a lifelong member of the Planetary Society, at least the lifetime of the society. Uh, It all is almost the same as mine. I was very little. (laughs) We are turning 40 uh, next year, in fact. Oh, Oh, nice. Wow. So I was 12. That makes sense. It was a That's still almost, yeah. 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 What is the Planetary Society? The Planetary Society, it's an independent nonprofit, and it's funded and powered by people like you, Philip, or just anyone who wants to be a member can be one. And the idea is that we want to bring people to engage with space, to create more exploration, more space science, search for life, and then really critically defend the Earth from things like asteroid impacts. Anyone can participate in this great joy of exploration. And the Planetary Society was founded in order to bring people together for that common cause. It's a great, great organization, yes. in my humble exactly. and completely uh, independent opinion. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and one of the founders was Carl Sagan. Indeed. When Cosmos was on TV or, you know. Right after Cosmos came out, it was the idea of Bruce Murray, the other co-founder, who was uh, one of the directors of JPL at the time, which is kind of wild when you think about it. He was the acting director of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, also a professor at Caltech. And they had seen what they thought was a very tepid public response to the landing of, of Viking, oh, uh, Viking uh, 1 yeah. and 2. Yeah. And that was actually one of the reasons... On Mars. Was, yes, in, in, in 76, I believe. And that was one of the reasons they pursued Cosmos, was to try to make people aware of this incredible opportunities that NASA was still doing. And then the idea to say, what if we built a basically some sort of a civil civic action group, a, a way to have people from a grassroots organizational perspective become engaged in space as well and not just become passive participants or passive recipients of what's happening out there. And so that was one of the genesis of behind the Planetary Society. Huh, cool. Our what the if today is something that might have been, uh, probably was, the utopian dream of Carl Sagan and all the founders and members of the Planetary Society, and all good, space-loving people. And that is, what the if... NASA had 
all the funding in the world. I'll pull back from that. I got too excited. <laughs> got too excited. What the if NASA had the budget of the Pentagon? Functionally, those are equivalent. <laughs> yeah, <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean all the money in the world and what the Pentagon gets? Yeah. What is their budget? $700 billion a year. Oh, okay. And that includes the two or three person UFO office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is an amazing day. So what, what we're imagining is we're in an alternate universe, in a, in a good way perhaps, Whatever, what just happened today in our scenario in Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill, is very different than the craziness that's going on right now, actually there. So, there is full of elation. It's just been passed, that this big budget. Now, I'm going to guess, <laughs> I'm going to take out of the scenario one thing, which is that this shift, because <laughs> that day, some people would like it. Some people would not. Yeah, we can just skip over the actual right. change. I so think. it's just yeah. we, well, have, we have you, Are you guys Star Trek this. fans? Of yes. course. Yes. Okay. So let's say that the Vulcans just landed. Ah. Uh, right. Okay. All right. Yeah. And uh, announced themselves. And we realized that, let's say that we really got to step up our space game now that we have uh, uh, Zephyrin Cochran has, has mm -hmm. showed us that Warp Drive exists. Uh, there's some government reasons to invest in developing a peaceful extension out for humanity and let's say that that covers the politics and you know if, if it's true star trekian then we realize globally we have less of a reason to fight with each other as an old trekker uh, myself uh, we can use that so yeah so we have so the congress has passed let's say a budget now of 700 billion, <laughs> i can barely say it 700 billion dollars for, for nasa well let's start Let's step back and let's say, what is NASA's budget now? And what do they do with it now? Just to give right. some context, because right. I think that's going to be important, right? Yeah. So, and I think that's also prosaically something that a lot of people, it's one of the most misunderstood things, I think, about the space program is how much people believe that we spend on it. So stepping back even further, back into real life, the U.S. government, again, we'll just kind of round number it here spends about four and a half trillion dollars every year. That's the rough number. So NASA this year, 2019, when we're recording this, gets 21 and a half billion dollars. It's about one half of 1%. Wow. So Vulcan's land. <laughs> mm -hmm. we're, we realize we got to up our space game and suddenly... We just shift that, uh, say, discretionary funding over to the space program. Actually, here I, I can I can tweak this. I know here here's a way sure. to do it it's because uh, I don't want I, I don't want to be distracted by other thoughts about oh well the, it's simultaneously a scenario about not defunding the Pentagon. Let's here's the sure. scenario that we the money shows up. The, okay. right, well, yeah. the country's so wealthy that um, the Pentagon budget stays at whatever it is, and NASA now gets this sure. massive, yeah. I, I was going to say, people would just be very, I, I think they wouldn't suddenly know what to do with themselves. They'd be so overjoyed, right? It's like the uh, like going to a buffet for the first time 
not eating for five days or I, I don't even know quite the right analogy to make. <laughs> We're going to have some resources to work with. I mean, this is this. So this is something actually that's also interesting too to step back in terms of how we frame this question, how we think through it. Technologically, his, uh, you can even okay, uh, Matt. You can even correct me on this one, but let's say to the history uh, historian of science. Mm-hmm. Historically, technology has been the limiting factor of exploration. Right, it's the technology to enable human for human exploration, and also just as the as the environments became more hostile. Mm-hmm. The technology needed to enable either human or even automatic uh, autonomous exploration of those became more advanced or needed to be more advanced. Would that be roughly correct? Way to you could certainly start a good argument about it, and it's definitely true for space exploration. I think for terrestrial exploration, it gets a little more complicated. I'll take that from the academic expert. (laughs) That's a a good, good start to it. Where we've changed, I would say, in space in the last 50 years, technology is becoming less and less of a limiting factor, at least conceptually, right? So Europa is a good example. Europa has uh, the moon of Jupiter. You have We know it has an ocean of water underneath it. It's really hard to get to that. It's protected by a block of ice, a surface of ice, maybe kilometers thick it's in a radiation belt around jupiter that fries your electronics it's hard to get there but no one says it's impossible right it's not like if it was 200 years ago and somehow we learned about uh, you know what would be 200 200 years ago uh, james garfield learned about europa and, and would have no idea how to possibly attack that problem right that the, the right. technology yeah. didn't even exist it had to be invented now it's just a function of difficulty and cost so once you start removing cost limits of the equation, the technology to go to Europa, to send humans to the surface of Mars or to the moon or other place on the solar system, no longer becomes limited in the sense that we face it now. The technology basically seen can be solved. And if you go back to how John Kennedy framed the Apollo mission, he pitched it as, we don't know how to do this yet, but we will figure it out, right? This yeah, is, right. It, there's the exact line escapes me, but he's saying it will use alloys and types of machines that haven't been invented yet using methods that we have yet to figure out. And they did, right? It, it was an engineering problem that had a clear path of development. And you don't right. even have that. This isn't everywhere today, right? You don't have this for, can, for curing cancer. We don't know how to cure cancer. We mm-hmm. truly don't know, right? And we spend lots of money trying to figure it out. The NIH gets twice NASA's budget, roughly one and a half times NASA's budget. This sort of explains why, for instance, Elon Musk and, and uh, other billionaires are saying, hey, we can, we can do this now. We have it. We have, we have the technology. <laughs> right, yeah. We, we can bionic make, man make a bionic man. <laughs> That's a fact. Actually, it's fascinating you point that out because, like, were it not for the, let's say, relatively limited budget of NASA, right now, we would be all over the place, right? We we could yeah. easily be yeah. colonizing yeah. places. I think now, presumably there's a, a there's a long pipeline on this, right? How long would it be, even with our new increased budget? How long until we've actually got boots on the Martian soil? Yeah, so that would be that's a that's a good 
gut check and reality check is that it wouldn't be a finger snap, right? This would be, it would still take, you're still limited to physical constraints of time and distance development capability. I would say, again, you look at something like Apollo, that functionally had all the dollars they needed to land on the moon when they wanted to. And so okay. yeah. the, the the way to think about the, the kind of classic ways for developing aerospace projects, you know, you have a, a, a schedule and you have a budget and you can kind of choose between the two of which one you want to stick to. So <laughs> Apollo had a fixed schedule right before the end of the decade or before the decade was out. So Apollo got the money it needed. And if you look at the budget profile of Apollo, it shot up that NASA's budget doubled multiple years in a row. After it was done, it dropped about as fast, <laughs> actually, mm -hmm. on the other side. So in this situation, it's suddenly we had all this money. I mean, it, it would probably be bad policy to suddenly give NASA $700 billion. You'd want to <laughs> ramp it up. <laughs> and I love NASA, right? And yeah. I'm saying this. you would ramp it up because you would have to hire, you, you would want to build smartly, right? I will gladly hold, I'll hold the money for <laughs> <Yeah>. them. <laughs> And so what you would start to do, you'd build up personnel, you'd build up in, an infrastructure. So what infrastructure would you need to do and what would be driving your plan? Let's even say that. So getting humans out into the solar system on a permanent basis to provide you an off-site backup for humanity, right? In case you have asteroid hits, you have a robust way to defend planet Earth, not from just asteroids, but also monitoring issues like climate change in the Earth system, protecting that. And then, of course, fundamental expansion of human knowledge, which is what really gets me going about space, pushing the frontiers of ignorance back and saying, how do, can we find life? And I would say if we had the budget, I would say we would probably find life within 10 years. Wow. Wow. We would be able to build a fleet of space telescopes bigger than the Hubble. We'd have teles space telescopes that would unfold into these giant mirrors. We'd have telescopes on the far side of the moon, the size of football fields, in all sorts of different wavelengths, radio to visible to, to ultraviolet, constantly observing and looking deep back in time, searching for life or faint signals. We would have telescopes so big we could directly image exoplanets. Right, we oh. could see pictures of them. Right, resolve them individually. We could see their atmospheres and what they're made out of. I actually remember once at I was at a, uh, I think it was a SETI conference that Frank Frank Drake was at. There was a bunch of Planetary Society people there too, up at Harvard, and Frank Drake had said if we had a if he, he had a telescope, I think he was even saying maybe the size of the Hubble. It was the telescope itself didn't need to be massive, but at the right distance from the sun, uh, he be able to use the sun as a gravity lens? Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah, if it was lined up just right. Yeah, he yeah. said we yeah. would see taxis on another planet. Yeah, you can use a, a light, you can use a solar sail to get yourself out there. So we would have, and this brings me to the other thing, we would have interstellar, a fleets of interstellar spacecraft, automated interstellar spacecraft with the most advanced AI and self-replicating robotic systems going out there, not to colonize, but to persist a human or conscious presence out into the deep parts of the solar system. And then, of course, in terms of humans, you would have your interplanetary economy. I think if you had something like 
NASA running the show like this, you wouldn't have an expanse type situation for those familiar with the, mm-hmm. the show and the books. Yeah. They can't get along. They can't get along in that show. Yeah, well, I think you would have a much more equitable situation, right? It wouldn't be as focused on an extractive resource economy because you would be heavily subsidized for an information and services and exploratory economy, right? The Star Trek fantasy future. You would basically be pushing the bounds of what was physically possible as opposed to what was technologically possible. So how many people would be working for NASA directly or indirectly in this kind of scenario? Probably millions. Wow. (laughs) How many people are in the U.S. military? Millions. So you would have, I would say, millions of people. And a good portion of those, I'm sure, would be in space. Wow, yeah. Once you build that up, right? Um, And again, the interesting aspect of this would be if you had such a level of of government effectively subsidy for these operations, your whole concept of, which I think is, is somewhat trendy right now, your kind of commercial possible mild dystopia of space <laughs> exploration, it, it wouldn't yeah. exist. You would have possibly hundreds of thousands of people living and working in space for the most kind of high-minded, beautiful reasons. You know, like working, uh, keeping the telescopes working on the far side of the moon doing scientific research on the dunes of Titan. You would have, you know, engineers designing, you know, swarms of autonomous flying robotic drones to go and map Mars and incredibly hide or or go into the caves of Mars or themselves do it, right? We'd be turbocharging the whole entire technological scientific industrial complex in an effort to push human presence, not just human through humans, but through a robotic sense to every nook and cranny in the solar system and solar systems beyond. You wouldn't have as much of a resource extractive economy because it wouldn't need to, at that level of investment, you would not need to have it pay for itself, right? So you wouldn't be sitting there, you know, you wouldn't have a moon lung, you know, uh, mining all your moon (laughs) uh, H2O off the surface of the ice off the moon and Moon dust. All that might be going on at the same time. Right? Look, if the technology yeah, is out there, you would get. Yeah, you would have a bunch of ancillary spinoffs from that too, wouldn't you? One of the uh, most amazing part of so many amazing moments um, during the, the uh, day of action we got to do it uh, for the Planetary Society up on Capitol Hill was we got to hear Jim Bridenstine, so the, the head of NASA, speak to us, and he used an interesting expression speaking about this new way of working with commercial space partnering. And he said, at some point, we hand off the keys to low Earth orbit, and we move beyond. And we j- NASA keeps pushing. Huh. NASA's the one that's out there sort of surveying, you know, the, the frontier, basically. Like Lewis and Clark exploratory missions, you could have an actual Louise and Clark. Right. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think the plan with commercialization now, I think a large part of that is a function of NASA's limited budget, right? So they want to hand off some of these things. They don't have to keep paying for it. But if you want to take the Pentagon, interesting, again, kind of a Pentagon connection to this. Obviously, the Pentagon outsources a lot of what it does. But something that it does subsidize is grocery stores on bases across the throughout the world that provide affordable, 
groceries, you know, like you can get your Kellogg's cornflakes at your base in, in Tokyo or Japan or whatever. And they're specifically focused in high cost of living areas around the world for service members who live on the bases. The Pentagon spends something around one and a half billion dollars a year for those grocery. There's a term for them. I'm just calling them grocery stores. I'm forgetting exactly, but they haven't spun that off to the just let the commercial operators of grocery stores serve right there. So when mm-hmm. you have those types of resources, you get to choose what your values are for how you expand out into these areas. It's a value that we consider when we have a volunteer armed services that we treat them with respect because they take that on themselves. They choose to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And that fundamentally changed over the course of our history, how a nation treats its soldiers, I think, in terms of what a volunteer army used to be treated like compared to how we have much more built-in respect for the people who choose to serve. Going into space, you can choose your values if you have that kind of resources to say, what type of experience in life do people, what, we, what do we want people to have there? Here's what's interesting. It's, you almost, I almost, I'm getting nostalgic in a strange way. First of all, I feel like you are channeling Carl Sagan in a beautiful way here, because this is the kind of thing. He, that's that's a, one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. Thank you. That's, that's I mean, that was his vision, and I'm seeing those uh, Gerard O'Neill, those beautiful yeah, paintings. Yeah. O'Neill habitats. Yeah, habitats and stuff like that. But, but another thing I'm getting actually nostalgic for, you're reminding us of a time where the government has done some giant, mostly benevolent thing, you know, whatever. And again, there have been different projects throughout the history. One thing you've brilliantly done, beautifully done, that I didn't think about was that you've also said, look at the Pentagon, that is a single mission. You know, it, it may be an un- unfortunate mission in some ways that we, if we need to defend ourselves from other people uh, attacking. Switch that to NASA, and it, it, you say that single-minded, single, single minded benevolent mission. That's beautiful. Here, I want to do this. I want to do this because I'm holding all this money. I've still got it. <laughs> I want to go shopping. Be nice. I want to go shopping, and here's the fun thing. There are so many things that literally is just a matter of money at this point. If we had money, we could have all of these things. So we all get to go on a little spending spree. We're standing outside the gigantic Walmart that is full of only NASA stuff. The automatic glass door is about to open. Inside is a greeter who's going to say, hey, welcome to NASA Mart. So start thinking about what you're going to buy. And that seems like a perfect moment Take a minute to talk about our sponsor this week, the awesome Space and Beyond Box from the editors of Astronomy Magazine. If you go to spaceandbeyondbox.com slash giveaway, you have a chance to win an annual subscription to the box. The theme of the first box is the moon, and there's a moon globe inside. There's a 32-page informational booklet from the editors of Astronomy Magazine with all kinds of awesome stuff. There is even this thing called the Lunar AR Notebook, which allows you to have an augmented reality view of the moon. That's enough for me. 
<laughs> That's worth the price of admission right there. The first thousand subscribers are going to get a free one of those Lunar AR notebooks. So spaceandbeyondbox.com slash giveaway. Sincere thanks to the folks from Astronomy Magazine for sponsoring this episode. I want to buy the space elevator. Mm. Mm. Well, this would be the time to try it. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think, so I'm not an engineer, which is always a good way to start an answer to an engineering question. I, I, my understanding is that the material tensile strength of it required for a space elevator doesn't really exist in anything large enough quantities to a, or at that scale to support it. Plus the constant centrifugal force of being whipped around a rotating frame would be very difficult. But if you want to find out if it's possible... You must be this tall to ride this. Yeah, sure, we, can at least, <laughs> we can chuck a couple hundred billion dollars at right. it. Yeah, right. give it a good go. Um, and that's the other thing. Your uh, op- ability to experiment would be much greater. That is something that the Pentagon does, right? They have massive skunk works, basically. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, single programs, the F-35 is always trotted out, which it should be. It's, it's a trillion and a half dollar program. For one plane. A kind, right, to, to develop the technology. Yeah, that to that develop that... and produce the first, I think, few hundred planes. It's, it's, it's over a trillion dollars. And, right. you know, that's, as we conceive now, a pretty luxurious NASA human mission to Mars. Amazing. Okay, now, before I hand it off to Mac, I want to buy, I am for myself going to buy a yacht, and it is going to be a solar sailing yacht. And the Planetary Society right now has, it is not a yacht, it's a little bit smaller. (laughs) But the payload is smaller at any rate. Yeah. Right? But the uh, light sail is still going? Still going good? It's still going. Yep. We just got some pictures downloaded, and you can listen to it. You can still fly over. You can listen to it on your ham radio or, or local antenna. Perfect example of what with a nonprofit motive, like you have a nonprofit organization, was able to take some money. People pooled their money together and took a very yeah. long time and they put that together. What is Mac going to buy? Uh, Disneyland Venus. Oh! <laughs> I hope it's uh, floating in the clouds and not on exactly. the surface. Exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. not going to be so much fun on the surface. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, it'll yeah, pay for itself. Yeah, right. I mean, I li- I do like how you just completely abandoned the nonprofit motive oh, yeah. and went full on Disney. I mean, Disney's going to own everything within the year, so why even wait? <laughs> you extrapolate <laughs> that out, that line out. <laughs> but I do. I am. I'm a huge fan of Disney, so that would be very exciting. And what about one other thing? What would you buy? What's your stocking stuffer? Europa submarine. Fantastic. Fantastic. Take that, James Cameron. Matt's going. <laughs> Matt's going. That ocean is something like, I think, 80 kilometers deep. So, right. like, an order, a factor of 10 deeper at some spots than the deepest spots on Earth. Nice. It, again, another example, by the way, of, like, where where there is a profit motive in our current, you know, in our capitalist, capitalist system, we've learned how to drill. <laughs> That's one thing America does well. We can drill. <laughs> I imagine that's somewhat a technological problem, but also with enough money. Think of the spin-offs. 
you would have. Yeah, literally, literally spinning off. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. <Yeah. laughs> Casey, what are you going to buy? Oh, gosh, where do or I fund. start? I should say fund. For fun. Well, here's my... Here's what I would do for fun. It would be, let's just take as a predicate that the search for life stuff, all the other stuff I just mentioned. I am, I have a fanciful notion of, you know, we talk about, and Elon Musk has actually said this quite nicely about not letting the light of consciousness get extinguished. You know, Cause this is the one place that we have where we know matter has evolved to the point where it can be aware of itself and be aware of the existence of others. And that's a pretty precious thing, right? We have one data point for that, or of location at least. Think about that. If you really want to preserve the concept of consciousness, we can step beyond our own anthropocentrism, excuse me, anthropocentrism, and say maybe we should have some sort of, I would say, if we had this kind of money, do a massive development program for a general AI to send out a fleet of them into interstellar space to spread the consciousness ah, concept wow. of consciousness. And particularly with, you know, you could explore it and say, maybe it can be self-replicating robotic systems. Maybe it can contain instructions for maybe things like DNA or human stuff. It, you know, do you want them to be emissaries or explorers to be able to send that out and have that be, it'd be the ultimate upgrade to the Voyager golden record. Because you would have the idea <laughs> yeah. of consciousness sent out into interstellar space. And, and no matter what then happens to this Earth or even our sun, there would be some record of matter organizing itself into a self-aware sentience preserved without having the, uh, the body, our fallible uh, biological bodies, uh, messy <laughs> aspects to yeah. sustain over over the eons that's kind of a, that's, that's what i would put some that'd be my that'd be pretty cool uh, eye in the sky one that is beautiful I, I love that you say elon musk sort of was thinking along those lines i love that here's a guy who has an enormous amount of money and he's already thought of something that he wants to do that's like way beyond that's too expensive <laughs> <laughs> it's so far down the road but that's why he's a visionary well, the interesting thing too, it's this is a good reminder. We're talking about scales of funding here that even the wealthiest individuals can never match, right? And that and that's always a good reminder. We talk about, you know, Elon Musk, and then of course Jeff Bezos at a different scale even than Elon Musk. One of the richest, the, the richest pe person alive, maybe top ten ever. Jeff Bezos could fund NASA independently for five years at his current, and he'd be broke. Oh wow. Totally different order of government, magnitude. Yeah, still government magnitudes of government resources still far outstrip the possibility of the individual. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, I'm still a, at my heart policy and citizen engagement with, with space and, and your own government. It's because if you can direct those resources or even a fraction of them into something you truly believe in, you can make an incredible difference, particularly over time. So it's a good way to good way to engage, and this is why we do things like the Day cool. of Action. Yeah, what yeah. what people can do when they come together. Yes, NASA, I think, is the only government agency, mostly aside from the military, where you can see people wearing their logo all over the place. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> you don't see people wearing, you know, Department of Commerce. Yeah, yeah. exact Department <laughs> of Commerce. Right, exactly. Those guys can afford better anyway. Yeah, but I would say also you can't join NASA. But you can join the Planetary Society and, and uh, connect with scientists and fellow enthusiasts. Yeah. 
every society member that I've met, and Philip, you too, you look at a picture of, of Saturn or something from Cassini, and you just stop and you just have that feeling of awe inside you. Carl Sagan was so eloquent about communicating the idea that the exploration of space isn't just about making money or pushing the boundaries or doing something cool technologically or having an adventure, but it's fundamentally about the relationship of the individual to the infinite. How do we engage with something so vast and fundamentally alien? We can approach that with excitement and joy, finding out what's out there just because we want to know. I've talked a lot today about politics and policy, but if that's not your thing, we have a great outreach and education effort that's led by my colleagues Emily Lakdawalla and Jason Davis to really break down what are the latest missions happening in space right now, what are they trying to find, you know, direct communication from the scientists on those planetary exploration missions. If you like the idea of investing in projects, we try to find interesting projects that we could crowdfund that sit in between, you know, basic research and what NASA's willing to invest in. How can we get things across the finish line into something viable? So a good example of this, light sail. Well, that was a CubeSat solar sailing spacecraft that existed only because people around the world decided to invest in it. We had a project called PlanetVac, a very low-cost sampling system that we can try to suck up the surfaces of other planets to bring back to Earth. Usually that's a very expensive, complex process. We helped invest in that, and now it's going to be flying on a mission to the moon in the next couple of years. So there's a number of ways you can engage with this. You mentioned Day of Action, so let's give a little, a little hat tip to that. What is uh, the Day of Action? Philip, you were there with me last year. I go out, Planetary Society staff puts this together. We book all of your meetings with members of Congress in their offices. We have special events. Last year, you guys got a special treat. You got to meet the uh, NASA administrator who gave you a special uh, talk. Uh, we had other meetups and opportunities to engage. It's really fun, it, and it does literally make a difference. Multiple studies actually show that the best way to influence your member of Congress particularly on an issue like space, where people tend not to have a strong pre-existing partisan slant, show up in person. They take that very seriously. Huh. And we had about 100 people join us last year. That was really great. We're hoping to beat that record again this year. It's February 9th and 10th. We have a full day of training, so you're not walking in cold. You're going in with other members of the society. It's fun. I think, Philip, you had a great time meeting other members. Oh, yeah. uh, I did, certainly. Yeah. And uh, you can sign up or learn about it more at planetary.org slash day of action. Right now, you can sign up anytime from now until February 1st, I believe. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. I remember the training sessions itself was actually, I, I didn't, ex I just wasn't even thinking about the training sessions. I was, I was glad there is training because I was nervous. I was like, I don't know what to do. I thought, okay, they'll train us. And um, it's that is, uh, I mean, I don't even know that training is the right way. It's training and something else. It's like training and enlightenment and knowledge. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you learn so much. I want to pull that quote. Yeah, yeah well, it's, yeah. you walk out of there, I'm willing to bet, Philip, you're in the top 1% of space policy experts now in the entire world based on a training opportunity. You you are quite familiar with the process, having done it in person. Even if you think you hate politics, Space 
politics will tend to restore some of your faith in the system because it tends to be a very rewarding experience because it's not infused with that level of partisanship that we tend to associate it with. Nice. That is an interesting note about politics because literally I, I made some kind of political joke. It was literally a joke, whatever, on Twitter. But one of our audience members uh, actually sent me a message and was like, oh no, you're not going to be... Co- the, sh- uh, the one thing I love about the show is that it's not political, it's about science, it's about the future, it's whatever. You know, it didn't. I don't want it to get partisan or whatever. And I will say that, again, one of the amazing things about the, the Day of Action experience was we met with representatives from all across the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. And my meeting with w- one uh, particular representative who was like really from the opposite end of the really far on the opposite end of let's say the spectrum from me we totally come together on nasa yep Mm, yeah that's great planetary.org is the website and you are you have a twitter i am on twitter casey dreyer but i also have can i plug my own podcast while i'm on yeah as part of planetary radio a weekly show i do a monthly podcast called space policy edition it's a monthly show. You can find that on planetary.org slash radio. We go into the history of space, the policy of space, the current politics. We have guests on, experts all over. And it's, I would say, the top-rated show in terms of space policy in on the internet. But I think I don't have much comp- not not too many competition, uh, <laughs> too much competition in that uh, group. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to our sponsor this week, the awesome Space and Beyond Box. <laughs> <laughs> from Astronomy Magazine. I got excited. <laughs> Go to spaceandbeyondbox.com slash giveaway. And that giveaway is important because you can enter to win a free annual subscription mm. to the Space and Beyond Box. That's great. Spaceandbeyondbox.com slash giveaway. When we think about what's coming up next, coming at us, all the potential topics the potential ifs (laughs) we are very nervous and so we scream the name of the show all right (laughs) here we go what the if what the if (laughs) 